This edition of the Bio Report is brought to you by the California Technology Council, providing discounts on products and services essential to every startup. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission last week finalized rules on crowdfunding that opens the door for the participation of non-accredited investors. The rules complete a long process for the commission set into motion by the passage of the Jobs Act. We spoke to Richard Swart, Director of Research for the Program for Innovation in Entrepreneurial and Social Finance at the University of California at Berkeley and Chief Strategy Officer for the crowdfunding investment site next-gen crowdfunding, about the new rules, how this will change the investment landscape, and what it all means for the biotech industry. Richard, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Last week, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission voted three to one to allow small investors to purchase shares in startup companies through online crowdfunding. These are long-awaited rules that grow out of the passage of the Jobs Act. Before we get to that, perhaps we can begin with crowdfunding itself. What is meant from an SEC perspective by the term crowdfunding? In the SEC's usage of the term, they're very specifically talking about what most people refer to as crowdfund investing, which is the purchase of a security in a smaller emerging company by an investor. Um, it's not anything to do with rewards or perks or Kickstarter. It's very specifically an a equity investment of fairly um, analogous to a private placement memorandum or a regulation key filing, if your listeners are familiar with that. It's a early-stage private raising of capital. Um, it's not a full security registration. It's an alternative to and an exemption from having to do a full SEC registration. Uh, investor participation in crowdfunding has been limited to accredited investors. What does the SEC vote do, and, and how does the decision change the investment landscape? Well, we've always the law, the Jobs Act specifically required that the SEC formulate rules to allow both accredited and non-accredited investors to participate, and we believe that the SEC issued the accredited rules two years in advance of the non-accredited rules to give them time to study how it was working. And now that they are more comfortable with it, they decided to allow non-accredited investors to participate in the market. The landscape, it's hard to predict. Uh, equity crowdfunding and crowdfunding investing has been active and successful in multiple countries around the world for a number of years. America's actually fairly late to the game. So the main change in America is probably twofold. One is the last 80 years, it's been illegal to announce the fact that you were raising money privately and to take money from non-accredited investors. That was called general solicitation of a private placement, and that was actually a federal criminal offense. It's now legal and accepted practice and has been for two years. So you can advertise through social media, through direct mail, through whatever you'd like to do, the fact you're raising funds. 
That's a significant change. The second change is that historically the markets have been almost exclusively for targeted investors for early stage investing, and now the average citizen, literally anyone above the age of 18 who chooses to participate in the market, can, if they so choose, purchase these early stage securities in very young companies. Or some of the companies that will be using it are going to be main street companies, pizzerias, bars, local establishments that want to raise funds from their customers. But the significance is that you can buy these early securities that historically have been only reserved for the wealthy. Why do you think it's taken so long for the SEC to get to this point? What, what was the SEC trying to work through? Uh, it, was, it was less an issue of understanding and more an issue of political pressure. There's huge tension in Washington, D.C. between those forces that want the government to very carefully regulate all the markets and to try to ensure there's very little risk, if you will, the Elizabeth Warren camp. And there's also the Libertarian Tea Party, more conservative caucus that believes the government is overregulating everything. And this unfortunately got caught somewhere in the middle of that conflict. And the SEC has been very uncomfortable with the idea of non-accredited investors purchasing these securities, mostly from the Democratic side of the commission. And Congress has been extraordinarily vocal and aggressive in trying to force the SEC to take action. And finally, I think they got the message and the SEC decided to release the rules. It wasn't an issue of needing to do more study. It was an issue of political will to release the rules. So in the past, when the idea of crowdfunding was introduced, you would hear concerns about investor protections and potential fraud. Interesting, the, the no vote on the commission, as I understand it, wasn't over concerns about lack of investor protections, but rather burdensome regulations on companies. How difficult will it be for small companies to comply with SEC rules on crowdfunding? It's going to be moderately difficult and moderately expensive. The SEC has imposed uh, filing requirements and disclosure requirements that are going to certainly incur legal and accounting fees. The background checks and the bad actor checks are not horribly expensive, and the platforms will absorb most of those costs as part of their onboarding process. We'll pass those costs on, but that will be part of the onboarding process. The They also removed the ongoing requirement for annual filings, which had been a significant concern in the industry, so we're very happy that they um, removed that requirement. But between brokerage fees and compliance fees and having your financial statements audited, or excuse me, be very reviewed, not audited, if you a requirement out, you're probably talking about few weeks of preparation and probably costs in the low thousands of dollars to be able to launch one of these campaigns. It's not trivial. Well, the, the intent of all this at its core was to open up new sources of capital for startups. Do you expect this will accomplish that? Being an empiricist, I have to say yes, because it is working in other countries. I don't believe that it's going to be a tsunami that is going to generate tens or hundreds of billions of dollars of investment activity because... Very few people understand alternative investments, and the majority of Americans are going to continue investing through their 401ks or, or money market funds. And the appetite for early stage securities or alternative investments is not huge. As you know, there's a lot of interest from family offices and a lot of interest from some of the institutional investors. And we're seeing certainly a huge shift in the dynamic around angel investing and how that's um, interacting with the world of crowdfunding. But I don't see an immediate upswell of demand from retail. Investors, I think over time, as they learn about the opportunity, they'll realize it's a great way to diversify their portfolio and do a higher risk, higher reward alternative asset class. 
but that education process is going to take years. Well, the SEC vote was the, a lot of the focus has been on how it has now opened up the crowdfunding world to the participation of non-accredited investors. But were there other things the SEC has ruled on here with in, in regards to crowdfunding that are significant? Well, several months ago, they passed what's called Regulation A or Regulation A Plus, which was Title IV of the Jobs Act, and I didn't get quite as much attention as it may have deserved. That created a new on ramp to the uh, smaller IPO market, up to fifty million dollars, and it's a very lightweight, inexpensive path to an IPO that is more akin to how companies used to do their IPOs twenty or twenty-five years ago, and it's become extraordinarily expensive and difficult for companies to go public. So this should restore the ability of firms to access funds without having to go through the, um, the expense and, frankly, many companies don't want to go through the public stock filings. So this becomes an alternative. You can raise just two types of funding, one zero to $20 million and one twenty one and above, up to $50 million. That's going to be a significant effect on sort of scaling growing companies, and it may start to affect the venture capital world. So that was a decision they made in September of this year, which didn't quite receive as much attention as the Title III Act um, being passed last week. You've studied crowdfunding as an academic. It's still in its infancy, but what do we know about it to date in terms of size, how it's been used, how successful a funding mechanism it's been? Well, again, this is how you're talking about crowdfunding. It's talking about rewards and perks. It's certainly changed the landscape of startups. It's become almost the preferred method of accessing what would be considered seed money or early stage funds. If you have a consumer product or a game, it's probably the dominant method of trying to raise funds. It's also very, very um, commonly used in the arts and film products and projects. Equity crowdfund investing has changed the landscape of angel investing, and often angel groups will now require that um, companies demonstrate consumer demand vis-a-vis a successful crowdfunding campaign. In terms of total size, it's very hard to estimate because there's something like 1,500 crowdfunding platforms in the world in over 80 countries. We know that it's a global phenomenon. We know that it's uh, extremely interesting to the Chinese government and Asian governments. They've um, vocally supported it. The British government and the European Commission have formally endorsed it and have printed tax policies to encourage it. It's active in Canada. It's active in South America. And I think, ironically, America has been one of the least innovative countries and they've been one of the slowest to act in this regard. Total market size is probably on the order of 15 to $20 billion in any, in any given year, and that's growing not quite exponentially, but most years it grows 100 to 150%. So it's certainly becoming a huge component of the financial systems. And in some countries, you don't have a sophisticated of an angel network or sophisticated of a venture capital system. It's replacing or leapfrogging over that. It's becoming a way for um, entrepreneurs to raise funds. Early on, there were some in the biotech industry, which our audience is focused on, that were skeptical about how meaningful a funding mechanism this could be for biotech companies because of the large amounts of capital needed to be raised. I think that perception is changing as people see it filling certain types of needs and realizing it can be a tool to raise more money than initially thought. Any sense on how it might be used by the biotech industry? Yeah, it's it's a complicated question. The first point is there are three different 
types of crowdfunding. Under Title II, and I won't bore your audience with all the minutiae, but Title II is raising money from the wealthy, accredited investors. There's literally no cap on what can be raised. And there are platforms out there that are raising millions or tens of millions of dollars for companies. And there have been a couple of biotech-related companies that have successfully used it. Title III, which is what just passed, has a million-dollar cap. It's a lot of biotech firms that million dollars isn't a huge uh, contribution, but it's a million dollars per calendar year. So sometimes you could use it just to uh, increase bargaining power and negotiation with a venture firm, uh, to bring in a number of um, friends and family or investors early on in the company's evolution. You know, under Reg A, you can go up to $50 million, so certainly you could do a small IPO at that point. It's certainly an option. The challenge that you have is that for the non-accredited investor, what the SEC ruled on last week, you have to have something that sort of has a social message, something that something can be posted on Facebook or social media and people can understand what you're talking about. So a very complex, innovative, scientific innovation, which will lead to a breakthrough, but is several years away in the pipeline, it doesn't have FDA clearance, all those sort of issues. That's not going to be something you're going to find the average person funding through Title III. However, there are sophisticated investors utilizing crowdfunding who would be interested in investing at that stage. So the difference also is there's many crowdfunded investments are considered fairly illiquid investments. There's not a lot of secondary trading yet. So the investors who come in have to have a long-term perspective. So then in the biotech or life science sense, that would probably lean towards people that are very familiar with the industry that are making long-term bets on companies. Although, you know, I imagine that, you know, if you think about something like a rare disease where no one's working on that, uh, a patient population could use this as a mechanism to back a startup to to get some critical yes. experiments done to get proof of concept or, or absolutely. And I, I think you will see the emergence of sort of, a, if you will, a variation of a public-private partnership. So maybe a trade association or a medical association around a particular disease family. This pick like the American Heart Association, for example, I'm not saying they're doing it, this is for example, they might use crowdfunding or sponsor their own platform as a way of investing in or supporting startups where they know through, you know, vetting or competitions that these startups are innovative and they could use their marketing muscle and the affinities that they've already built to support those people. So crowdfunding can be sort of the bridge between fundraising by associations or um, these cause groups who oftentimes don't have a huge amount of um, sophistication in social media marketing, but they could use crowdfunding to support some of these startups that they wish to help. Well, if you, if you think about that kind of potential, any sense on how this might change the relationship between management and investors? It shouldn't have a lot of effect. One thing to understand is that most crowdfunding securities are sold as common stock, as preferred stock, so they don't really have... You know, preferential rights, like if you get money from an angel investor or a venture capitalist. So it shouldn't have a huge amount of impact. If anything, getting money from the crowd does have sort of a social bond and it, and it might force the management team to try to communicate with a non-sophisticated audience more frequently. So it may increase the amount of investor relations that you have to do. But it shouldn't necessarily fundamentally alter the balance of power, like bringing in a targeted investment from a venture capitalist will. So this is obviously a, a world of high risk, high reward investment. Are, are investors ready for this? I can't answer that empirically. I mean, around the world, there has been appetite for these. And you certainly have seen 
um, moderate levels of investing in the non-accredited space. Uh, globally, the accredited investors are showing the majority of demand. It's become a new form of syndicated investing that they're jumping on. So I believe the answer is as the market gets more and more comfortable. I was in meetings two and a half, three years ago when venture capitalists and angel investors were mocking the very idea of crowdfunding. And now several private equity firms and venture capital firms are directly investing in or creating their own platforms. So as they've understood the models more, they're getting more comfortable with it. But I think the, the large impact of crowdfunding is still probably five years away. Uh, you mentioned liquidity earlier. I imagine that's the one issue that investors may be least prepared for. Would you expect secondary markets to develop down the road for these type of investments? And do you Absolutely. think that would be there already are there already are firms working on that very problem. Nasdaq just bought um, second shares, and Nasdaq is making an aggressive effort towards that. And OTC is also making some efforts in that space. So the question isn't whether it will emerge. The question is. Um, which market will they be traded upon? And I, if I had to guess, I would guess it will end up being NASDAQ. That's simply a guess. Richard Swart, Director of Research for the Program for Innovation and Entrepreneurial and Social Finance at the University of California at Berkeley and Chief Strategy Officer for the crowdfunding investment site, NextGen Crowdfunding. Richard, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.